Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Unless you are living a life that is totally disconnected from football, you probably have heard the name Tom Brady. Tom Brady won a record seventh Super Bowl last February, the first six with the New England Patriots and the seventh with his new team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, as of last Sunday evening, in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' victory over his old team, the New England Patriots, he became the NFL's all-time leading yardage passer. Uh, as a quarterback, he is universally considered to be the goat, not the animal, but G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. That's Tom Brady. But let me ask you a question. Is the ability to throw a funny-shaped brown leather ball really the measure of greatness? Jesus would say it's something quite different. Our series is entitled Divine Invitation. And the theme for the whole series is this. The kingdom of God has come and you and I are invited to be a part of it. Jesus had come not, not to modify or, or correct the old, but to bring something brand new, something different, something exciting, something eternal. And in this new kingdom that Jesus brought, things that were considered by most people to be important were really found to be trivial. And things that were considered and are considered yet today to be great and to be the measures of greatness are found to be insignificant. In fact, our big idea for today is this statement. Greatness may not be what you think. If you have your Bibles, we are in Mark's Gospel. You can open it to Mark chapter 8. That's where we'll begin in just a moment. Uh, let me remind you of the setting. The Gospel of Mark is actually a journal of, of Mark's record of conversations with the Apostle Peter in which Peter recounts his experiences with Jesus when Jesus walked on planet Earth. And at the point in which John Mark is recording those things, Peter is toward the very end of his life. In fact, it's not long before his execution. And he is in a Roman prison. And he is recounting these stories, these experiences. And John Mark becomes that Holy Spirit-inspired scribe to record those. And they have been preserved by... Uh, the providence of God all these years down to us. And when we get to Mark chapter 8, just a bit of, of biblical context, Jesus has just fed the, the 4,000 men plus their families. Jesus is still being stalked by the Pharisees, trying to catch Him in something with which they could discredit Him with the people or get Him in trouble uh, and arrested by Rome or if necessary, 
to take his life, which they would eventually do. And they are hounding Jesus at this point to perform another miracle to prove to them that he really is divine. But Jesus does not perform miracles on demand for Pharisees. And so Jesus and the disciples get back into a boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee. And as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, the disciples realized that they had forgotten something that they considered very important, but Jesus would show them that it really wasn't. So begin with me, Mark chapter 8, verse 14. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. I mean, do you understand what's taking place here? They are in the presence of the Son of God and they're arguing over a sandwich. The disciples just, they couldn't grasp what was going on. They had seen Jesus feed a multitude. But they were seeing, but not understanding. They were hearing, but they weren't learning. Verse 17, Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said to them, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard? To take it in? You have eyes. Can't you see? You have ears. Can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? To my shame I say sometimes the disciples reminds me of us. That we too can be hearing but not understanding. Being taught but not learning being instructed but not changing. And here's what this, this story from Mark's Gospel is saying to us. Jesus calls us to kingdom things that will last forever. But we tend to focus on temporary things that will pass away like yesterday's lunch. Jesus knew that His time with His disciples was coming to an end. It would come to a close soon. And so it was time to find out if they even knew who he was. So Jesus asks them. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Hey guys, what, what does the man on the street say about me? Who does he think I am, the man on the street? Well, they replied, verse 28, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. And Jesus could have said, well, that's not surprising. 
They're where they always are, somewhere between confused and clueless. But let me ask a more important question of you. Verse 29. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, can I just make a confession? Verse 30 has always confused me. Uh, Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. Peter got that right. And then you would think Jesus would say, you nailed it, Peter. Go out and tell everybody. But instead he says, don't tell anyone. And I, I always read that verse and went, why would he say that? And I, I finally, in studying scholars' interpretation, it, it became clear to me that what Jesus was doing, even though Peter had gotten it right, he was the Messiah, there were dangers in public identification in that historical religious context for them to go out and declare Jesus the Messiah because there were great misconceptions among the Jewish people of what Messiah meant and what the Messiah would do. They thought Messiah was coming to defeat Rome and to elevate Israel. And so to identify Jesus to the public only as Messiah would misconstrue his true mission from the Father. To bring the kingdom of God. To become our Savior from sin. Well, even the disciples were, were confused about this. I mean, they had bought into the the preconception that the Jews had that the Messiah would arrive on a white horse and he would conquer their oppressors and elevate, elevate Israel to a world power. That's, that's what the disciples had heard pretty much all of their adult lives. And they were still confused by this and so Jesus sits them down again to try to explain them that that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It wasn't about changing the socio-political landscape of the first century. And so he begins to explain to them God's mission for him and what he would have to endure to accomplish that mission, that mission of redemption. And so he says to them, verse 31, Jesus began to tell them, that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, He would rise from the dead. And let's be honest, that, that message from Jesus was confusing to the disciples. In their minds, they're going, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what do you mean you must suffer? What, what do you mean you will die? And what, rise again? This was just so foreign to them. They had to wonder in their own minds if Jesus had lost his mind. And, and, and it prompted something in Peter that is just absolutely startling. Verse 32, as he talked about this openly with his disciples. Picture this. 
Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Now stop and think about this. Peter's telling these stories. And if it had been me, I would have looked back upon that with shame and regret and never talked about it again. If I had reprimanded Jesus, I would not be telling people about it. So you have to admire Peter's humility and his willingness to follow the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he unfolds this to John Mark so that we might know what happened. John Mark probably responded by saying, you scolded Jesus? What did he do? And Peter remembered vividly. Verse 33, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus was saying, get your mind out of the gutter of this world, Peter. Set your heart on the things of the kingdom of God. And Peter, these two kingdoms are not compatible. They're not the same. They're different. They are diametrically opposed to each other. Do you remember what Jesus had said? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not about the world economy. It's not about governments and who's leading them at any given time in history. It's not about trying to reform a broken culture that was broken by the fall of man into sin in the Garden of Eden. It's not about any of those things. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's about something new. It's about something different, something greater, something eternal. And the exciting thing that I don't want you to miss, <laughs> Jesus invites you to be a part of that kingdom. Of what he came to bring to this broken planet. And a being part of that kingdom is what being a Christ follower is all about. And Jesus begins to explain that further to the disciples in verses 34 and 35 to define what it means. Verse 34, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. And then Jesus makes it even more clear in verse 35. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. 
But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. Here's a, here's a paradox of the Christian life. Follow me with this. The tighter that you try to hang on to your life, the less there will be when your life is over. The tighter you try to be in control of your life, the more you try to push your own ideas, opinions, and agendas, the more you think you can be in control, the tighter you try to hang on to your life as a Christ follower, the less there will be when your life comes to an end. But if you will give up your life without reservation, without exclusion, without conditions, if you unconditionally surrender your heart, mind, will, and life to Jesus Christ, when you come to the end of the, this life's journey, whenever that might be, you and I will have riches in heaven. That's the paradox of the Christian life. There's a quote that is credited to a missionary to China, uh, the late Charles T. Studd. Maybe you've heard this quote. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. That means for the Christ follower, our life is no longer about our selfish ambition. It's no longer about personal gain of any kind. It's no longer about our opinions, ideas, and agendas. Our life becomes all about Jesus and His kingdom and His gospel and His glory. So you would think that the disciples would begin to, to have a grasp on this. Jesus made this so powerfully, profoundly clear. <laughs> but two chapters later in Mark chapter 10... The disciples still didn't get it. Look at what a couple of them did and the rest of them followed suit. Mark 10, beginning with verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. That's pretty bold and brash right there, isn't it? Hey, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. We want you to serve us in this, in essence. Verse 36, what is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. The brothers had figured this out. They're basically saying, Jesus, we heard you talk about the suffering and dying and we're not sure what that's all about. But listen, listen. When you sit on your glorious throne, we want in. We want to be right there with you. I mean, after all, Jesus, somebody will have to be on your right hand. And somebody will have to be on your left hand. So why not us? We're your guys. When you come into power, Jesus, we want to be at the top. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, 
you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus said, we don't understand all that suffering stuff, but we understand we'll have to pay our dues, so whatever it is, we'll gladly do it. But when you come into power, we want to be ruling right there beside you. Verse 39 continues, Then Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left God has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. Now look at this. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Do you think they were indignant because they thought Jesus had mistreated James and John? No. They were indignant because they didn't get in line in front of them. And they thought a payoff was coming and it was going to be every man for themselves. And James and John got there first. So they were angry that they didn't get to the, the top of the line to ask for the power when it came. <laughs> Jesus understood they were clueless about the kingdom of God. And so one more time, he sat them down for a lesson. Verse 42. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And about this time, the disciples would have been nodding, Yet yeah, we understand that, Jesus. That's the way the world works. And whether it's the 1st century or the 21st century, it's all about money and power. Whether it's in politics, or in business, or just in life. It's all about money and power. And Jesus would have nodded and said, you're right. That's the way the world works. But then he would call them in, and he said, listen, Listen to me. Verse 43. But among you, it will be different. Among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader, whoever wants to be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you, must be the slave, the servant of everyone else. And Jesus in this next verse, in essence, says, Do you think you are greater than I am? The one who has come from heaven, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life? Do you think you are greater than I am? Verse 45 for even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term for Himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus was trying to get through to those hard-headed, hard-hearted disciples and to us. That greatness in the kingdom of God is entirely different than greatness in the kingdom of this world. And those who are part of the kingdom of God, who seek to try to ascribe power of the kingdoms of this world, are making the same mistake that James and John made that day. The answer is not to try to reform the the culture, or even reform the government, or to reform the world by leveraging worldly power The kingdom of God is not of this world. The power is in a servant-hearted servant of God who makes Jesus known and shares the gospel of redemption from sin. Jesus said, among you it will be different. So, I think it, it demands that we ask ourselves some questions. Here's the first question. What does greatness look like in the kingdom of God? What does greatness look like in the kingdom of God in your life and in my life? What does it look like? Well, let me pose three more questions. There could be many. Do you show love, mercy, and grace when others show bitterness, condemnation, and judgment? Love, mercy, and grace? I read what one pastor said this week. He said, the the world is convinced that Christians hate gays. It's our job to prove that they're wrong. Awfully quiet in here. Do you understand what that means? It doesn't mean that we agree with what the Bible says is sin, but it means that like Jesus, we love the sinner. Do you show mercy, love, and grace when others show bitterness, condemnation, and judgment? How about this question? Do you serve and give yourself to hurting people while others are grabbing everything they can for themselves? That's the way of the world. Do you serve and give yourselves to hurting people? I know a whole bunch of people in this church that do that so very well. And I don't know everybody and what your life looks like. But let me tell you, when you're serving and giving yourself to hurting people, that looks a lot like Jesus. Here's one more question. Do you leverage your time, influence, and finances to help people in Jesus' name while others are more concerned with indulging themselves and indulging their families? That's the way of the world. Get all you can Be as comfortable as you can. Enjoy the things of this life. After all, you've worked hard. That's the way of the world. But the way of Christ is to say, 
Not everything that comes to you is for you. Do you leverage your time, influence, and finances to help people in Jesus' name? And if we're talking about greatness, it's important to say, I believe, that the first step to greatness, the first step to greatness is when you step across the line of faith to believe in Jesus, to believe that He died for your sins. You step across that line of faith, turning your back on the old life of sin. And you turn to a new life of following Jesus as Savior and Lord. The first step to greatness is stepping across the line of faith. And I would just ask, in this crowd, in this room, is there anyone who hasn't done that? If you're watching online, is there anyone watching who you've never done that? You can never truly be great until you take that first step across the line of faith to believe in Jesus and begin to follow Him. But for those of us who have, I would ask you this. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? then don't ignore what Jesus said today because greatness may not be what you think. We close our services each week with a time of prayer and a time of invitation. May I explain? If there's something on your heart that you need to pray about, I would tell you that it's a good thing to pray with godly people. And in just a moment, some of our deacons and their wives will be here at the front and in the balcony. And if you'd like to pray, these people are godly people, prayer warriors, and they will not share what you share with them with anyone else, but it would be good for you to pray with them. If you have need of God's healing mercy, Cindy and I will be at the front. As an elder, I would be honored to anoint you as Scripture teaches, and we will pray over you for God's healing power. But if you're here today and God has been tugging at your heart, maybe you don't really understand fully what that means, but it just may mean you need to take the next step in your faith journey. Whether that's stepping across the line of faith for the first time or taking a step toward Jesus or taking a step to recommit yourself to following Him more faithfully, whatever that might mean, if you would come to one of these prayer partners and just simply say, I need to take the next step. Very simple. People have done it every week. I need to take the next step. These godly, wise people will help you know how to do that and how we can help you. So would you stand with me as we pray and ask God to do a wonderful work in these sacred moments of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin when we repent and turn to You in faith. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has never taken that step, that life and eternity changing step, I pray that they would come. Or if someone is here that needs to take a step at some other point in their faith journey, help them to have the courage to come and say to one of these godly prayer partner couples, I need to take the next step. Lord, for those who are carrying burdens today, help them not to carry it alone, but to feel the freedom to come 
and pray with one of these dear couples, leaders in our church. And if there's someone who needs healing, Lord, I would love the opportunity to pray for them to be healed by the mighty power of the great physician. Lord, we give you this time for your honor, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. You are the God of all healing. You are the God of restoration. You are the God of salvation. You are a God of love and mercy and grace. And we give you thanks, Lord, for all of the prayers that have been offered both here at the altar and there in the altars of a believer's mind right where they stand or sit. We thank you. You have heard those prayers and you are at work. Thank you for the privilege and honor and glory of worshiping you today. For we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. If you're a guest today, I hope that you'll come by the hospitality room. I'd love to meet you, give you a gift from the church. Have a great Sunday, everybody.